This morning, out of chapter 1 of Luke, again, we're following along in these birth narratives, and we've reached the place where Luke records what's known as Mary's song, or more literally, the Magnificat. It comes from the Latin, from the first line, uh, where she says, My soul praises the Lord. And this is a rich, rich psalm, hymn of praise. So we're going to kind of set the stage this week, and then next week we'll actually parse the passage in greater detail. But I pose a question to you, it's in your notes, and it's designed for you to reflect on this week, to think about this, and uh, try to respond to this question in some 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 significant way, some uh, personal way, uh, particular way, not just kind of generally, globally, and but, but begin to see if you can identify some particulars. question, very simply, is how has God shown His mercy and grace toward you? How has God shown His mercy and grace toward you? And, secondly, what has been your response? You know, if you take communion, we're, we're reflecting on God's mercy and grace to us. And there, that, that demands a response for us. So when we think this way and we ponder that question it, it 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 demands a response from us how how do i respond what is my response to him mary responded to god's mercy and grace to her in humble submissive obedient faith but not only that she responded also in praise and worship in verses 46 through 55 we see a rich offering of praise from Mary. Read these verses with me. And Mary said, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. That passage is remarkable. It's remarkable for a number of reasons. First of all, how old is Mary at this point? 12, 13, maybe 14 at the most? Uh, is this remarkable that this, this language should come out of the mouth of a 13-year-old? How many other 13, 14-year-olds do we know that are extolling the Lord this way? Remember, she probably didn't have her own copy of the Hebrew Bible. She didn't have her own copy of the Scriptures. Those were very, very rare. They were basically kept in the local synagogue. But her theology, her use of the Old Testament, as we'll, as we'll see next time, is absolutely amazing. Her familiarity with the Word of God had to come from her overhearing it week after week after week after week as a young girl no doubt, in the synagogue. 
Remember, the, the, the men and the women were separated in the synagogue. The men were taught. The women sat off to the side and only could overhear what was being taught. So no doubt Mary was there present in the local synagogue week after week after week, listening, listening, listening. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus himself regularly attended synagogue service on the Sabbath. And so no doubt, I'm sure Mary also, growing up, regularly attended the synagogue service. The Word of God had settled in her heart. Just listening to it, listening to it. The Word of God had settled in her heart. And and it gave rise, when she began to praise God, it surfaced. It's just like when you... When you hear the truth and you, and you love the truth and it settles in your heart and, and when you have opportunity, it begins to rise to the surface. And here she has that opportunity and, and she gives praise to God in the most magnificent way. What a blessing it would be if uh, somehow uh, in the church across the land, more and more young people would be so biblically astute and devout. The scriptures emphasize, I think you'll agree with me, they emphasize the priority of worship. Throughout the entire Bible, you see again and again the emphasis on worship. And worship is attributing worth to God. That's simply what the word means, worship. His worthship. And so we attribute worth to God. We we proclaim His name. We acknowledge Him in all of our ways. We give Him first place. He is worth it. You recall Satan in tempting Jesus when Jesus was 40 days out in the wilderness and fasting and praying, and Satan came to him. And one of the very first things Satan says to him, one of the first temptations is what? If you will fall down and worship me. And Satan would love nothing more than to have people worship him. And, and that doesn't just mean that you're involved in Satanism. It means simply that, you're, that you find yourself worshiping things other than God. That there are maybe idols in your life. Jesus rebukes him and he says to Satan, uh, Away from me, uh, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so there's a challenge for us. You know, is, is God the, is He my only God? Does He deserve all my worship? And does He in fact get all my worship? In Hebrews chapter 10, we read, we read this. The writer to the Hebrews says in verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. This is, a, this is a tangible expression of our worship. How, how are we spurring, literally the word is incite. How are, how are we inciting one another on to love and good deeds? Now we can incite one another, can't we? But it's not always to love and good deeds. So we have to look at our life and, and as we worship, then we are in fact inciting by how we live our life, who we are, we are, in fact, inciting people on. We're motivating people on to love and good deeds. Does that make sense to you? 
And then he says in verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. There are people who say, you know, it's not important to meet together. It is vitally important to meet together. We need one another. Why? Because it's only in this environment that we can incite one another on. That we can be examples and encouragement to each other. Let us, he says, uh, not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So here's a context of worship. Peter says this. So if I can connect the two passages. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us, let us, let us. Since, Peter says, we are living stones and we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering, now notice this, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, this appeal to worship. Who are we? We are the church, or we're certainly a part of the church, but, but we are part of this spiritual house being built up and all designed to, to worship God and to offer these spiritual sacrifices. The obvious image is from the old temple in the Old Testament where the animal sacrifices were offered. Well, now we are the temple, and now spiritual sacrifices are being offered. Because God created men to worship him. God has created us to worship him. All people, then, are inherently worshipers. You can't get away from it. It's built into us. I remember years ago, uh, Bob Dylan, when he was flirting with Christianity, uh, recorded an album. Some of you may recall it. It's called Slow Train Coming. And he had a cut on that album that was just, the whole album was just spectacular. And I couldn't hardly believe Bob Dylan, you know, when I, my, my crazy hippie days now, Bob Dylan's a Christian, you know, whoa. But he had a cut on that album, and it was very simply titled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. <laughs> I thought, whoa, how simply, beautifully powerful. You gotta serve somebody. So who are you gonna serve? Who are you gonna worship? You gotta worship. He has designed us to worship and worship Him. So we are now inherently worshipers. Does that make sense? Now, the question is, what is the object of our worship? You see, the object of a person's worship determines that person's eternal destiny. It's as simple as that. Worshiping anything or anyone other than the one true God is called idolatry. The ancient Israelites' persistent idolatry, and you read the Old Testament, you read all the prophets, their persistent idolatry was condemned by God and what was eventually led to their destruction and their captivity. You go back and you read the Old Testament. And more particularly, if you read in 2 Kings chapter 17 through chapter 21, that segment, you read God speaking to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, and, and tell them he's going to destroy them. And then he turns to Judah in the south and he says, I'm going to take you off into captivity. And we recall that was part of what the book of Daniel talked about was the Jews being in captivity in Babylon. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this. 
Paul talks about the, 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 the idolatry that is the inevitable response of people who deny the one true God. He says in verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Everyone is going to stand before the Lord on, on, the, on that great judgment day, and, 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 and no one's going to have an excuse. No one's going to have an excuse. No one's going to be able to say, I didn't know. And God's going to say, yes, you did know. I gave you a clear witness, but you would not... Well, how did you reveal yourself to me? Through that which has been made. Just through what we call general revelation, through creation. All you have to do is look around. How did all this happen? Oh, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. God brought it into existence. And the order is amazing. Then he goes on, he says, verse 21, For although they knew God, they know there's a God, even the most confirmed atheist down deep, deep in a place where he doesn't want to admit knows there's a God. Because God has a built-in witness. Even though they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. They didn't worship Him. They didn't worship Him. They turned from Him. They would not worship Him. Now look at the result of their life. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. So when you turn from God, you turn to idolatry automatically. Why? Because we are designed to worship. We're going to worship something or someone. The question is, what is it? Idolatry can include idols of the heart. I read a book um, this summer on my time away, and uh, the title is Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. It's a great read. And in fact, uh, Keller's written a number of books. Anything by Timothy Keller is worth reading. This one's Counterfeit Gods. You ought to get it and read it. It's just powerful. But he talks about idolatry uh, can be anything in the heart, the intangible things. How many people want to be accepted? You know, most of us growing up have learned how to do whatever it takes to be accepted or to do whatever it takes to avoid not being accepted. Isn't that true? And really what happens subtly without our even realizing it, acceptance becomes the God in our life. We worship it and we'll compromise just to be accepted. There isn't a single one of us that, that hasn't felt like I needed to say something to somebody, but because I didn't want to be ridiculed or not accepted or such, I, I zipped it up, right? I gave in to the idol of acceptance. How many of us like power? Well, let me rephrase. How many of us like to be in control? <laughs> power can be an idol. And it's a subtle thing. 
It's not all of a sudden one day, you know, I'm going to be... No, no, it's something that grows in your life. Because we're weak, because we are sinful, there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control, and that feeds right into our innate insecurities and inadequacies. And so we try to make up for that. Rather than trusting the Lord, we try to control things. And pretty soon, control becomes our God. Power becomes our God. Does that make sense to you? Fame. Health. I'm all for health. I want to be healthy. I want my wife to be healthy. By the way, uh, we had a point with the oncologist this week, and uh, we had a scan, and she's making progress, so we're grateful for that. And that doctor was happy. <laughs> Wealth. Man, money can control us. Sex. Uh, we could go on and on and on with the, these kind of idols of the heart. And, and what we think is that we, we think that these things are really the key to happiness in our life. If I just had, and you fill in the blank, if I just had, I would be happy. When, wait a minute, I've got the Lord in my life. And that should be sufficient. Oh, if I just didn't have that person in my life, I'd be happy. We can all relate to that one, huh? No, that person's in your life to keep you focused on the Lord so that you could give the Lord's love to that person, right? And then you would be what? Deliriously joyful. So we make counterfeit gods out of these things in our life. You can be a Christian, love the Lord, but you're going to battle it all the time. Do you know that? You've got to be on your guard. Idolatry is not limited simply to the worship of false gods. Idolatry also includes attempting to worship God in an unacceptable manner. In other words, you, you, know, you, 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 you make up your own ways to worship God. People do that all the time. Well, I worship God this way. I worship God my own way. Wait a minute. God has prescribed how he is to be worshipped. He, he leaves nothing to chance. He leaves nothing to speculation. Let me give you some examples of people who invented their own ways and chose just on their own foolishness to worship God or to uh, exhibit this kind of unacceptable worship. Exodus chapter 32. Famous. The Israelites had just come out of Egypt. Moses is up on the mountain. What's Moses doing? He's getting the law from God. He told the people, wait for me down here, behave yourselves. They said, aye, aye, captain. So when Moses goes up on the mountain, the people are down in the valley on the plain, and they are behaving themselves, right? Now, he's no sooner out of their sight than they're throwing a party. But not just throwing a party, what else are they doing? Yeah, they created an idol. The golden calf. Now remember, they had just come out of Egypt, so they're familiar with all of the idols in Egypt. And so it was very logical for them to, to take one, and the, and the calf was one of the premier symbols of the gods of Egypt. So they fashioned this idol, and in effect, this golden calf, they had reduced the one true God who had brought them up out of Egypt to an image they had reduced this 
irreducible God to an image. They weren't worshiping a God of Egypt. They were, they were worshiping God, but they reduced him to an image, something that God strictly forbid. Make no image of me. Don't try to put me in a box. You can't contain me. Because the minute we try to contain him, we can control him now, can't we? The result? God judged them with a plague. Brought a plague upon the people. Because of their unacceptable manner of worship. In Leviticus chapter 10, another example. Instead of following the prescribed regulations for worship, Aaron, the high priest, had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. Remember those guys? Now they're they're said to have offered unauthorized fire. Now they're probably drunk. There's some sense in which you read the text, they're probably drunk when they do this. But they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. It's just, they just do their own thing. Expediency. And the text goes on and tells us, verse 2, that God was not pleased with their innovative worship. The verse says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Is worship a serious thing? (laughs) Yeah, how we worship God is a serious thing. It's not a casual thing. It's not just, well, you know, just worship, just do our thing. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Another example. 1 Samuel. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, King Saul. It's in this text we see King Saul taking matters into his own hands when he's threatened by the Philistines. Now earlier, the prophet Samuel had come to Saul. They know the Philistines are closing in on them. We'll read the text in a second. Samuel tells to Saul, tells Saul, wait seven days. Now, isn't that our favorite thing to wait? Samuel says, wait seven days, I'll be back, and I'll offer a sacrifice. All right, let's see what happens. 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Might that be a bit intimidating? They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Man, when God doesn't show up, huh? Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And so Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, meaning Saul, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Just as he finished doing what he was never supposed to do. He's not a priest. 
Only the priest was to offer the sacrifice, not Saul. You see how in panic he takes matters into his own hands? You don't even have to raise your hands, just rhetorically. Anybody ever taken matters into your own hands when you panicked? Where's God? Come on! Something's got, somebody's got to do something. The Philistines are at the door. When the seven days are up, Samuel had not appeared. Saul rationalized doing what he was not supposed to do. Now listen. Let's finish the text. Samuel arrived. Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, it's your fault. (laughs) See, they always blame the pastor. (laughs) Somehow it's always my fault. Go figure. And you didn't show up at the set time. The Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, ooh, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Would you have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation? You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. If you had just waited, if you had just listened to what I told you, if you had just known that God is faithful, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The failure, the failure of Saul to worship God properly cost him everything. Is worship important? Years later, you recall the Philistines, they had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And that had caused them a great deal of trouble. I won't go into all the details of that. Some of you know the, 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 the situation. So the Philistines finally deliver the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites. And David decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem amidst great celebration. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 is the account. Now question. When the Ark was to be transported... How exactly did God say to transport the ark? Anybody remember? On a new cart. No? On poles. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. On poles. That's right. So listen to what happens here. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He, He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart. At least it was new. Not some old cart that they found on the side of the road. They got a new cart. Should they get some points for that? 
And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. And everybody's dancing and singing and playing music before the ark is headed to Jerusalem. Wow, this is great! A party! When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, one of the sons, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. In seeming reverence for God to keep the ark from falling on the nasty old dirty road, he reached out and stabilized it. And the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) Verse 7 says, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Uzzah's seeming reverence for the Lord was actually a direct violation of his command not to touch the ark on the pain of death. You were not to touch it. That's, they were to be carried on poles by a certain tribe of priests. And the drastic consequence of Uzzah's disobedience graphically, I think, illustrates that God does not accept any variant or any self-styled alterations of his instructions for worship. Worship is serious business. So what is acceptable worship? What instructions has God given us to worship? I've given you four references. We're not going to read them this morning, but I want you to go study them. I want you to look them up. I want you to find out. What are God's instructions for worship? Isaiah chapter 1, Amos chapter 5, Malachi chapter 1. In fact, the entire book of Malachi, really. Matthew chapter 15 and chapter 23. Interesting passages. So what is acceptable worship? What is acceptable worship? Central, I think, to worshiping God is certainly praise. Is that a fair statement? Praise would be central to worshiping God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 puts it this way. Let us continually offer to God. How often should we do this? Continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Now, why does he use the word sacrifice, you suppose? Do we always feel like praising God? No, it's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. I'm going up to praise the Lord. I'm going to rise up and praise the Lord. I'm going to bring this body that doesn't want to into conformity with God's word, and we are going to praise the Lord, whether I feel like it or not. It's a sacrifice of praise. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And then in verse 16, he adds this. Worship also includes doing good and sharing with others. For with such sacrifices, God 
is pleased. So worship is not limited just simply to praise and raising our hands and, 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 and praising with our lips. But worship really is an extension of that with our life, isn't it? Life, our life is an expression of worship. What does Paul say in, in Romans? Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Worship is an expression, it's a life expression. Even the meeting of financial needs is an act of worship. Listen to Paul's words as he writes to the Philippians. He says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So here are the Philippians. The Philippians were among the Macedonian churches. If you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, you read about the Macedonian churches, and Paul describes them as people who are absolutely dirt poor, who, who out of their poverty, they begged for the chance of contributing to the support. And so this is who the Philippians were. This was a sacrifice, and they joyfully participated in it. And similarly, if you go to the early chapters of the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 4, you see that the, the early believers worshipped God not only with song and praise, but they worshipped Him with their goods, didn't they? As anyone had needs, some would actually sell a house, a piece of property, bring the money to the apostles' feet and say, here, the people have needs, here's some proceeds distributed as, as to anyone who has a need. Wow. What I do with my money, how I conduct my life financially, is an act of worship. And most of us are aware the Bible talks about that a ton of times, doesn't it? Money. Jesus defines true worship two ways. He says true worship has two fundamental components. This is just another way of saying what I've been saying with these other passages. In John chapter 4, Jesus talks about these two components. The, the text, the context is the, the interview with the woman at the well. And they're having this discussion of worship. And uh, Jesus says, A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father. And they will worship the Father how? In spirit and truth. And he repeats himself. He says, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So the Father seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, what does he mean by those two, those two phrases, in spirit and in truth? Sometimes people say in spirit means you've got to dance and go, ooh, and speak in tongues and... And they define that as being in spirit. I submit to you that it's not what it means. It's not a direct reference to the Holy Spirit there. What does he mean, in spirit? He means that your worship in spirit is simply genuine. That it's real, that it's sincere, it's from the heart. As opposed to a mere outward ritual, going through the motions... It's from the heart. God, I love you. I worship you. You're my God. There is no other. An old 
17th century Puritan writer put it this way. He says, without the heart, it is no worship. Without the heart, it is no worship. It is a stage play. And acting a part without being that person really, which is acted by us, a hypocrite. And the notion of the word is a stage player. He says, we may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship Him if we lack sincerity. So we may worship Him, however imperfectly. But if there is no sincerity, if there's not a genuine heartfelt attitude, it's not worship. You know, we could go through the motions and say, love you, love you too. That's real sincere, isn't it? You feel loved? No. David puts it this way. I love this. See if he doesn't sound sincere here. <laughs> See if he doesn't sound heartfelt. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. All my inmost being. Praise his holy Everything that's in me. Praise His holy name. Say that with me. Come on. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Woo! This is what he says in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, he says this. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a what? Broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. A broken spirit, a contrite heart, a humble attitude gives rise to genuine acknowledgement of Him and who He is and true worship. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Memorize that verse and, and, and recite that verse throughout the week. Just rehearse the verse throughout the week. In your car driving, praise the Lord. <laughs> Let yourself go. Be sincere. I believe the Bible reveals a number of prerequisites if we, in fact, are to worship in spirit. In other words, there have to be some places, some things in place if we are, in fact, to worship in spirit. Let me suggest these things to you. Number one, I think it very, very important that a true worshiper be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You think that's fair? Is that a fair statement? True worshiper be controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit? That would, I think, presuppose salvation. In other words, you've got to be what? Born again. <laughs> if you ain't saved, you can't worship. Really. Because it's only by the Spirit. Those not born again are not saved and therefore do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit and therefore are not able to please God. And pleasing God means worshiping Him in an appropriate manner. Do you follow my logic there? Again, let me read to you from Romans in Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. 
These are powerful words. He says to us, verse verse, uh, 7, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. you got to be born again. Jesus says, unless you're born again, you you don't get it. You can't see it. It doesn't make sense to you. It's all foolishness. Once you're born again, a whole new world is opened up to you. Isn't that true? You go, I mean, when I got saved, I went, whoa. How long has this been around? This is great. I love this. I remember telling my mom, I used to hate going to church because she used to always drag us off to church as kids, right? I hated it. When I got old enough, I quit going to church. I didn't go to church for years and years and years. So after I got born again, I couldn't get enough church. And my mom was just astounded. She says, what happened to you? (laughs) I said, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I are born again. I love Jesus. I can't get enough. It's a whole new world opened up to me. Absolutely thrilling. Secondly, to worship God in spirit requires that the thoughts of a man or a woman be focused on God. Does that make sense? Should our thoughts be focused on God? Or should we be mindlessly worshiping, thinking about the car, uh, the laundry, uh, the kids, you know, all these other things that, that certainly distract us. No, our thoughts should be focused on him. True worship, think about this, true worship flows out of an undivided mind filled with and meditating on God's truth. Remember Mary? I, I suggested to you that here she probably was in the synagogue week after week after week overhearing the word of God and that would give rise to her song of praise. It would just bubble to the surface. Psalm 1 verse 2. I love this. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates what? Day and night. His, his mind is filled with God's truth. Psalm 119, David says, I meditate on your precepts, I consider your ways. In other words, I camp out on this stuff, I think about it. I want it to inform my life. I want your word to inform my life. I want your word to inform the way I think. I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your word. Now, do you think his life was informed by that word of God? Absolutely. Here's the third one. True worship in spirit requires repentance because sin hinders fellowship and communion with God. If if you cherish sin in your heart, if you harbor sin in your heart, you're not repentant, you are just simply not going to be a happy Christian. You're not going to be a joyful Christian. Psalm 66, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I want to worship God. If, I, if, 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 if something is there blocking me, I know I'm wrong and I'm not dealing with it. I'm, I'm not going to be able to really truly worship Him. My worship is not going to be sincere. Psalm 139. Again, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And we have those, don't we? Anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, not in my neighbor, in me, 
and lead me in the way everlasting. Fourthly, to worship God in spirit requires humbly accepting His will no matter what the circumstances. Whoa. We can't do this another way, God. Humbly accepting His will, right? Regardless of the circumstances. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham. God called him to do a a huge thing. What did God call him to do? Offer his son, his only son, on the altar. Did Abraham humbly accept God's will in the face of the obvious circumstance? Mary, uh, in our our study here, Mary herself, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Okay, let's do it. So worship must be in spirit. Worship must also be in truth. It must be in truth. As we saw earlier, God rejects expressions of worship, self-styled worship, inventive worship that is inconsistent with His revealed truth. That's the key. He rejects worship that is inconsistent with His revealed truth. The only source of that revealed truth is found where? Where? In His Word. That's where you find out how God means for us to worship Him. In His Word. So only worship that is consistent then with the Scriptures is acceptable to Him. You follow my logic on that? Our worship songs, Alan works very hard to make sure that our music and our songs are theologically accurate and truthful. Sometimes when there's a little word or something out of place, I'll go to him and say, yeah, we need to change that. But we work very hard at that to try to keep our, our worship songs, if you will, our praise songs, theologically, scripturally accurate. Hebrews 10.22. This verse summarizes the approach of true worshipers to God. Here it is. Here it is in a nutshell. One verse. True worshipers of God are sincere. They draw near to God with a sincere heart. They are faithful. They draw near to God in full assurance of faith. They are humble, having hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. In other words, they're not justifying themselves all the time. And they are pure, having bodies washed with pure water. Mary herself is an example to all of us of faith, of humility, of submission to God's will. She also models for us, I think, true, acceptable worship. After hearing this astonishing news that she from the angel Gabriel, that she is going to be the mother of the Son of God, the Messiah. I mean, if that doesn't make your head swim, I don't know what will. But after hearing that astonishing news, she absorbs it. She's heard that her older relative Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. She hurries off to visit Elizabeth to confirm this. 
you know, when she sees Elizabeth, when she hears Elizabeth, when she actually sees her pregnant, and by Elizabeth's own testimony, when the baby in her womb leaped for joy. It was then that God confirmed to Mary that what he said of her would in fact come to pass. Any lingering doubts, any lingering questions would have been answered right then and there. And her faith was strengthened. Can you imagine three days walking to Elizabeth? What might be going through your mind? Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And as Elizabeth speaks to her, Mary now breaks forth in this hymn of praise to her God and our God. And we'll look at that next time. Amen? Father, thank you again. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great purpose and your great plan. We love you this morning. We worship you. Lord, instruct us again. Renew us again in how you would have us worship you. Lord, I pray that our worship would would not be casual, it would not be insignificant, but we would in every way, in every manner, attribute worth to you. You are the great God. Amen, church? Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Share with your neighbor one thing that impacted your life this morning.